Well, good morning. How are you guys doing today? Good, very good. Um, it's our first visit of this year, so Happy New Year. Okay. <laughs> and to answer your question, Mark, I tricked her. I can't believe she fell for it, but... <laughs> okay. Um, you know, the beginning of the year for me, it's always a good time to reassess what we're doing, if we're going in the right direction. And I think that it would be a good idea for all of us to do that, uh, not just in the beginning of the year, but throughout our life, uh, to make sure that we're going in the direction that we should be going. And when the direction that we're following at, at a certain moment is not the right one, what we have to change is the focus of our life, because depending on what you're focused, you know, your direction will change. Today, I want to talk to you about what should be the focus of the Christian life. Um, oftentimes, we can find in novels or even in movies things that we can learn for our life. Um, I know that some people don't like it when I use, they have mentioned to me that I shouldn't be using things that are not the Bible when I'm teaching, and I just remind them that they have to consider who is our example. Our example is Jesus. And when he taught, sometimes he just made up stories to teach a lesson. So I'm just going to follow his example, okay? Um, there is a contrast that is very interesting between the central characters of two novels that then became very popular movies. Uh, these two young girls that found themselves in a very similar situation, but faced it in a very different way. I'm talking about Alice in Wonderland and Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. If you've read the book of Alice, or if you saw the movie, you remember Alice was a young girl that was bored and sees a rabbit run by with a watch and, and, and starts following the rabbit. The rabbit goes down the hall and down she goes with the rabbit. And then she finds herself in this wonderland. And after a couple of adventures that she goes through in the book, you know, she leaves the house of the Duchess and, and she starts walking in the path in the forest. And all of a sudden, the path turns into a fork. And she's there like, she stopped because she doesn't know which path to follow. And then all of a sudden, the Cheshire cat appears. Uh, she had just met the cat, you know, a, a couple of, you know, episodes before. So she's happy when she sees the cat, and she says, Mr. Cat, I'm so glad that you're here. Can you help me? Which path should I take? And the cat says, well, that depends. She says, depends on what? It's like, well, where are you going? Where do you want to go? And she says, well, I don't know. And the cat says, well, then I guess it doesn't matter what path you take, which is true in life, you know? If you don't know where you're going, then it doesn't really matter what path you take. You know, uh, after uh, Peter Drucker wrote his uh, theories about management in the 70s, most companies today uh, are managed in a way that is called management by objective. And what they say is, you need to know exactly what you're trying to achieve, what's the most important thing that you think you have to reach for, and then you manage your company following that direction. In contrast to what Alice faced there, we have Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. Now, raise your hand if you have seen The Wizard of Oz more than 10 times. All right, you all need help, okay? <laughs> you know, this is, um, this is a very uh, different approach to, to, to the situation 
because you know the story of, of Dorothy. She is found by herself in the house for different situations, and then, you know, the tornado comes and, you know, takes the house up, and she hits herself against the wall, and then when she wakes up and opens the door, all of a sudden she's in this beautiful, colorful world, which is the land of us, but she feels very lost, and all she wants to do is go back home. And, and, and she learns very fast that the, the only way that she's going to find out how to go back home is if she goes seeking for the Wizard of Oz, and, and he's going to tell her how to get back home. And then there's um, three other characters that accompany her in her, in her search, in her journey. You know, there's a scarecrow, a scarecrow, a tin man, and a lion. And each one of them have a reason why they want to find the wizard. You know, the scarecrow wants a brain, and the tin man wants a heart, and the lion wants courage. Which when you, if you have seen that story too many times, you, you don't really think about it. You go like, oh yeah, they want these things. But think about what they're searching for. You know, they're searching for the capacity to love, the wisdom to live life, and the courage to persevere through, you know, obstacles. And all Dorothy wants is to finally get back home. Does that sound familiar? You know? So they ask how do they find this wizard, and the instructions that they get are very simple. You remember the instructions? Follow the yellow brick road. All they have to do is follow the yellow brick road. And, and that's what they do. They follow the yellow brick road, and it takes them through adversity, and they have to fight the witch and some flying monkeys and all kinds of things. And finally, they get to the Emerald City and meet the Wizard of Oz who grants them their wishes, and they all live happily ever after. That story has delighted many generations, not only in the U.S., but around the world, because it's a story of a group of people that are united in the search for what they consider the most important thing, that thing that will define them and, and help them get through in life. You know, they consider this the most important, and they keep going until they find it. And I think that that's a problem for a lot of people. You know, they don't know what that thing is. They don't know what they should be seeking, you know, that would define them and, and help them persevere in the face of adversity. Uh, in, in our times, in our society, the problem oftentimes is the fact that people don't know who to ask. You know, there are so many voices, and, and, and these voices most of the time are pointing in opposite directions. So people are confused, kind of like Alice. You know, they're, they're looking at the two paths, and they don't know which one to take. But for us as believers, it should be more like Dorothy, because we have the Bible, and the Bible paints a yellow brick road for us that we should be following it and seeking for something. But the truth is, um, our faith is not simple, and our Bible is a thick book, you know? So the Bible is full of so many things, you know? There, there's a ton of commandments and directions and promises and warnings, and it teaches about so many things that what I have noticed is that a lot of believers, what they do is they concentrate so much in three or four of the trees in the Christian forest, that they miss the forest altogether. So what should be that focus that we should have? How should we live our life and what should we be seeking for 
if we are Christians. I know that God gives all of us natural abilities. And those abilities will help you determine the direction on a facet of your life, you know, your, your career. You know, some of us are good to be doctors or accountants or preachers or musicians. Or, so that's what God gave you natural abilities for, to help you direct yourself in that area of your life. But what is that main focus that all Christians that, you know, call themselves Christians should have? Well, the answer to that question can be divided in two parts. The what should we be doing and the how do we do that? It is very interesting because, as I said, the Bible, it, it, it's a thick book, and it's usually filled of so many things that we should really be attent when we find the verses that summarize the Christian life. Those are rare verses. Usually we find little things, but every once in a while we find verses that give you a summary of what your life should be like or what you should be doing. And it's, as it turns out, you'll see that in the Old Testament, we find a verse that tells us the what, and in the New Testament, we find a verse that tells us the how. So let's look at the Old Testament first that shows us the what. It is found in the verse in uh, the book of the prophet Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, which should be a verse that sounds very familiar to you, because it's in the back of some of your T-shirts that you're wearing right now, and it's the verse where the values of community of faith were taken from, okay? So Micah 6, 8 reads like this. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? I mean, it couldn't be more clear the question. What does God require of all of us? It says, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's the summary of the life of a Christian. Okay, so let's analyze what each one of those three things mean. First it says to act justly. What does that mean? See, what he's saying there is that the life of a Christian should be characterized for an honest pursuit to always do the right thing. See, I put in your notes this, we must pursue the ability to do what is right always. That means in every area of your life, whether if you're at school or at home, at work, or hanging out with your friends or on vacations or in your small group, wherever you are, at whatever moment, and regardless of circumstances, you should always respond with the right thing. Of course, it's going to be very hard for you to know what is the right way to respond to situations if you don't know your Bible. Because those are the trees. See, that, that's the, the variety of things that tells us how to live life. It's found in the Bible. So the more you know your Bible, the more you're going to know how to respond to the situations of your life and always do the right thing. Then it says to love mercy. That phrase is a little bit harder to translate. Actually, the, the word that we translated as mercy, uh, it, the essence of the meaning of what Micah tried to say cannot be said with one word in English or in Spanish for that matter. See, the word in Hebrew is chesed, and it's found many times, more than 250 times in the Old Testament, and it's translated different in different places. You know, the, the, God used that word to describe his character. If you remember in the book of Numbers when God said, I am slow to anger, 
but abundant in steadfast love. Those two words that we translated steadfast and love, it's just one word. It's chesed. So love mercy, it's almost like if you said you have to love loving. It's a steadfast love. In Lamentations, it's translated as unbreakable love. It's just one word. Or faithful love. The translation that helped me the most to understand the concept is one that said that chesed means to love with loyalty. To love with loyalty. Think of that concept for a minute. See, I don't know how many deep, real relationships you have right now in your life. It depends on the stage of life. When I was a teenager, I had like 600 friends, you know, but as you become an adult, you have less and less, and you realize less people are really good friends. But think about this. How many of the people that you consider your friends, you can be 100% sure that they love you with loyalty? I can guarantee you that that number is not very big. There's very few people around us that truly love us like that. And yet, it is those people that make life bearable. You know, life is hard. Life is full of pain and adversity and, and tough days. But it's that people, that group of people that you love and love to be surrounded by them that make your life enjoyable. You know, that they are the bubble that you go to to protect yourself from the hurts of the world. And what is God telling us in that verse? He's expecting us to love that way. So what he's saying is we must love with loyalty the people around us. That's our task. Love with loyalty the people around you. And then it says, walk humbly with your God. What he's saying there is, I want you to follow me, you know, and actually it says, walk with me, which it, in Hebrew it means I want you to be my friend. People that walk together, did life together as friends. But he says, but I want you not to do it in arrogance. I want you to be humble. See, uh, all over the place the Bible says that God opposes the proud, but gives mercy to the humble. Why does he do that? Because he knows that arrogant people, proud people, don't really need God. They think they're self-sufficient. They don't need to be saved from anything. You know, they're, they're proud people. Their heart is usually very hardened. So they can never be transformed. Because they're not willing to accept that there are, you know, like weaknesses in their, in their character. So God says, I want you to follow me. I want you to take my hand and follow me because you know that I am God and you are not. So you're going to humble yourself and follow me. Now, you don't see this in the English translation, but in Hebrew, what Micah said was, what does God require of you? And he says, only these three things. So, so Micah says, that's it. That's all God is asking of you. Always do the right thing. Love with loyalty everyone around you and humble yourself before your God. Easy enough. Go and do it. You think it's easy? Are you living your life like that? So the question is, how? How do I live my life like that? Well, we find the how in the New Testament. 
See, there is another summary verse in the New Testament, and this one to me is more impactful because it was said by Jesus Christ himself. He said in Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. See, that verse is connected to the passage before by that word, but. You know, if you read the, the previous passages, Jesus is saying, why are you concerned with these things? And why are you concerned with food? And why are you concerned with clothes? And why are you concerned about anything? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be taken care for you by God. So let's analyze how is this the how, okay? It says, seek. During the 70s, uh, here in the U.S., there was this huge spiritual revival. And, and I have noticed that for some strange reason, people here in this country love to express their belief systems in bumper stickers. You know, they, they put them in their cars. And, and at that time, one bumper sticker became very popular that simply said, I found him, referring to Jesus Christ. People that were being saved, they would get the sticker, put it in their car, I found him. And, and the sticker, or even the phrase by itself, there's nothing wrong with it, but it can be very deceiving. Because if you believe that the seeking period of your life is over when you find him, you are in trouble. The truth is, we begin to seek the kingdom of God after our conversion. See, when Jesus said to the people, seek first the kingdom of God, he wasn't talking to pagans. He was talking to people that knew God, that they were expecting the Messiah. They were believers. And he's telling them, you know, you have to, your main task is to seek the kingdom of God, to be seeking and seeking and seeking diligently. And I know the word is a little bit confusing in our day because when you think of a seeker, you know, you think of a person that doesn't know God, doesn't know the Bible, you know, but they all of a sudden start feeling that something is missing in their heart. They don't understand why they achieve certain things and they reach their goals and they get married and have kids and stuff, and there's still that emptiness inside of them. So they start looking to see what that is that they're missing and they're seeking for God. And then they come to church and they find out what is it that they were seeking for. See, but what Christ said here is that the life of a believer should be marked by permanently seeking the kingdom of God. And we have to seek diligently the same way that God went and looked for us when we were lost. Just, just think of the images that the Bible paints for us about God looking out, you know, going out to look for you when you were lost. In Luke 15, he says, it's like a woman that lost a gold coin. What did the woman do? He, he turned the house upside down. She looked under every furniture. She, she opened every drawer. She cleaned her house completely, had her friends help her until what happened? Until she found it. Or uh, Luke 15 also gives us the image of a shepherd. So it's like a shepherd that brings his sheep into the pen, safe and sound, and counts them and says, 99, I'm missing one. And what does the shepherd do? He goes back into the field. And probably goes and looks to where there was water and there was food and where they were playing and the, until he finds that ship and brings the ship safe to the pen. And he says, that's what seeking means. 
We have to keep seeking. Our life as believers is a mission of seeking. And it says, seek first. The word first in Greek is protos, which does not communicate order. It's not this first, then this, then this, then this. It conveys priority. So what Jesus was saying was seek above all else the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What Jesus was saying is this is the thing that you have to seek. If you seek for this and you don't seek for anything else, you're good. You can achieve whatever else you want in life, seek for whatever other goals in your life. But if you don't seek for this, you're lost. So above all else, seek first for the kingdom of God. The essence of the Christian life is seeking for that which is the most important, which is very good news. Because it means that we were not left in this world to guess the relative value of different objectives like Alice. Our case is more like Dorothy, where Jesus painted a yellow brick road for us that we're supposed to be focusing on all the time. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be taken care of. So the question is, how do we seek for the kingdom of God? The 16th century, uh, Martin Luther, you know, the, the father of the reformation of the church, uh, he tried to reduce the, the, the Christian life into one idea to help his, his own disciples. You know, and, and he came up with this phrase in Latin to help them understand how do we live life seeking the kingdom of God. And the phrase was, Coram Deo. If you had asked, you know, Martin Luther, what is the goal of your church? What is your mission as a person? What is that you do with your life as a believer? He would have answered, Coram Deo. Coram Deo, the, the word Coram comes from a root word, Cora, which means pupil, I. And Deo means God. So for, for Martin Luther, Coram Deo means you have to be before the sight of God all of your life. Luther said, all I want to do is be able to see the face of God. That is the reason why we exist. You know, that's what we're trying to fulfill, that that inks in your heart is because you want to be in the presence of God. And that is the most wonderful promise that we're given in the Bible. That at the end of the road, the final goal for a believer, you know, the, 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 the deepest level of satisfaction of your heart is going to be fulfilled when you're finally in the presence of God, looking at him face to face. You know, Augustine of Hippo uh, wrote a book called Reflections. And he wrote a phrase in that book that said, Oh, Lord, you have created us for yourself, and our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in you. Our heart will not find rest and will be anxious until we don't find that rest in you. That's a very interesting phrase because according to the existential philosophers of our day, you know what is the common problem of humankind right now? Anxiety. That's what we all have in common, anxiety. And that anxiety comes from living a life that seems to be meaningless, that doesn't make any sense. 
You know, so this is why people are running the rat race and trying to achieve things and create things and advancing technology and thinking that if we get to Mars and get to this or create these cars or this technology, we're going to find peace. Augustine says, we're not going to find peace in our hearts until we find it in him. You will not have rest in your heart until you find your rest in him. And what Martin is saying with Coram Deo is, you're not going to find that rest until you see him face to face. And that's very ironic because that's precisely what we lost when Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. We lost the right, the privilege to see God face to face. After that point, you remember in the book of Exodus, Moses says to God, I want to see your face. And God says to him, no man can see God and live. After that expulsion, we couldn't see him. And yet, the promise of the Bible is that at the end of our journey, at the end of our life, we're not just going to feel his presence or hear his voice. We're going to see his face. Actually, uh, the apostle John, who, you know, he wrote three letters besides his gospel, in his first letter, he says, we don't know what we're going to be like when we're in heaven, but we do know one thing. Look at what it says. First John chapter 3, verse 2 says, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We're going to see him in all his glory when he returns. So the final goal of the Christian life is to see God's face, and we will see him at the end of the journey. But what Luther is saying is, yes, but you need to be seeking his face while you're here. You know, and, and, and this is not something that just happens in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you, you remember the blessing that God instructs the people of Israel to bless each other with? If you, if you have heard the song, The Blessing, you know, the source of that song, it's found in the book of Numbers, chapter 6, verses 24 to 26, and look at what it says. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. That was the blessing. May the Lord shine his face upon you. Why? Because that's what gives us peace. And when I say peace, I don't mean no more conflicts or no more wars. I mean shalom that harmonious relationship that a person can achieve with his or her creator, that when you have that shalom with God, then you can be at peace with yourself and you can be at peace with the people around you. This is what we live for. This is what Luther meant when he said, Coram Deu, you have to live before the presence of God. Now, that has a double meaning, as he explained. You know, on one hand, it means that you have to live motivated by the desire to see the face of God. You know, your motivation while you're on this earth should be the fact that one day you're truly going to be in his presence. And this is something we have said many times. You cannot put your hope on anything that is on this earth. You know, if you derive your identity, you know, your source of security, your satisfaction from anything that exists in this world, that is going to fail you. And when it does, 
you're not going to have the motivation to keep living. This is why there's people that are dead alive. Because they put their hope on things on this earth and then they lost them. Everything here is passing. It's fragile. But the promise of God that one day will be in his presence will never pass. And that should be your hope. So you should live with the motivation, you know, the desire to see God's face. But that's one side. The other side is we need to live with the awareness that all our life is actually lived in the presence of God. You know, your Coram Deo, whether you know this or not, God might be invisible to you right now, but you're not invisible to him. So the question is, how would you live your life if you were actually aware of this truth? That everything you say, everything you do, everything you think, you're doing it in the presence of God. Would you live the same way? One of my favorite uh, Bible scholars is um, R.C. Sproul. He already passed away, but um, R.C. Uh, tells a, a story of when they hired him to be the pastor in a church in Boston. So he moved to Boston with his wife, and he arrived to Boston before the moving band arrived. So all his stuff was in the band, and, and the day that they arrived, they invited them to a very formal event. And he realized he didn't have any formal attire with him. It was all in the van. And the only thing that he had with him was in his car was his ministerial formal attire. In that denomination that he was there at the time, they used that formal outfit that uses a collar, you know, white collar, kind of like the Catholic priest collar and a coat, and very elegant, but clearly a ministerial outfit. And he says that he started driving towards the event, and they were driving down Route 128 in Boston. I've never been to Boston, but apparently uh, Boston has the highest rate of accidents, automobile accidents, in the country. And that route is one of the most dangerous because it's a route where you can drive really fast and people don't have any self-control because it's easy to drive, so everybody's speeding. And Arcee's driving down with his wife trying to go at the legal speed limit, but the other people are not having it. You know, so they're passing him out. Everybody's upset with him. And he says, every time I, somebody did something to me, I felt like doing a gesture, you know, to show my disapproval, you know. But then I remember I was wearing the collar. He says, I have the yoke of Christ in my neck, you know. So it stopped me from sinning. My wife, Karina, immediately pointed out, yes, but he thought about it. So he sinned all the same. I was like, yeah, but it doesn't have to do with the story. So we're not going to go there. Okay? <laughs> but I, I just wonder, you know, how would you live your life? Just, just imagine that wherever you went, there would be a luminous flashing sign that said, Christian, son of God, and an arrow. <laughs> Everywhere you went. How would you treat people? in the lines, in the supermarket, in traffic, or under stress at work, or under stress at your house, with your mate, with your kids? How would you live your life when you're alone in your room if you thought that in the corner on that chair is Jesus Christ sitting down, and every time you look, he goes like, <laughs> I'm here, <laughs> you know? Would you live your life the same way? That is exactly what Martin Luther was saying. For him, Coram Deo meant you live your life before the presence of God 
under the authority of God for the glory of God every day of your life. Now, it's hard for different reasons. Like, like Dorothy's path, it's, it's full of adversity and danger. And we also have an enemy that is all the time trying to derail us. But it's also complicated because, especially for new believers, you know, when you explain to them that we live Coram Deu, that we're in the presence of God, but our king is not physically here. We don't see him. So we tend to forget all the time. But you see, for all of us that live on this side of the cross, we have this huge advantage because God became man and lived his life like a man and allow us to know the Father. This is what the Apostle John said in John chapter 1, verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relation with the Father, has made him known. Jesus came to this earth so that we could know the Father. You want to know what the Father looks like? Look at Jesus. And I know some people say, yes, but then he left. So we can't see him anymore. But see, it would help you a lot if you understood that there are three types of sight. See, there's physical sight, which is what you perceive through your physical eyes. That's one type of sight. There's what's called rational sight, which is what you do with your intellect. And you know, when somebody tries to explain something to you in the beginning, it's a bit confusing and you keep struggling and they keep explaining it until at some point you go like, oh, okay, I got it. I can see it now. You're not seeing really anything, but in your mind, now you see the concept clear. That's rational seeing. But there's a third and even more powerful way, which is called spiritual sight. See, that's the one that we perceive through our soul, through our spiritual disciplines, mediated by the Holy Spirit when we read our Bible and, and, and kneel down in prayer and meditate on what we read. And all of a sudden, spiritually, we see God. You know, we can see him with our spirit. And if you think about it, that's even a more powerful one because there were people that were standing in front of Jesus, but they could not see God with their physical eyes. But to other ones, in an instant, they saw him. They could see he was standing in front of them. So when the Bible says, no one can see God and live, it's talking about physical sight. But you and I can see him with the combination of our intellectual and spiritual sight. Actually, John makes a very strong emphasis on the effect that the incarnation had in our, in our quest to see God. Because in this life, we had not been able to see God, but thanks to Jesus, we could see him. But look at what Jesus said in John 14, 9. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And thanks to the Holy Spirit, now we can see him spiritually. We can see the face of God. And that is the single focus of the Christian life. You should spend your life Coran Deo. Seek first 
the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Remember, at every moment of your life, you are in the presence of God. He's right there with you, not just watching you, but strengthening you. And if you know this, then, you know, to do the right thing at all times, to love with loyalty the people around you, and to be humble before the majesty of our king becomes doable because he gives you the strength if you're aware of his presence all the time. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he'll take care of everything else. Everything else will be added on to you. That's the focus of the Christian life. Corundale. Let's pray. Father, um, we recognize that this life can be so confusing sometimes. That not only our society is bombarding us with information that is contradictory and most of the time wrong, but we get lost sometimes in the Bible, Father. So we want to thank you for these two clear summary verses that you gave us. That you should walk our lives you know, acting justly, loving mercy, being humble in front of you, seeking at all times your face, seeking your kingdom, your righteousness, Father. And we thank you in advance because we believe your promise that everything else will be added unto us. Thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.